You might like to keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter. I want to begin with a question. In fact, I'm going to ask you a number of questions throughout the um, talk today. And I, they're rhetorical questions, although you're more than welcome to put your hand up and answer them out loud if you want to. Uh, what is it in life that defines you? What, what are the things that give you your identity? Do you find your identity in the things that you have? The car you drive, the size of your house, and the holidays you go on. Maybe you find your identity in the people you know, your family, the size of your family. Although I found out the more I've got, the more I can't get their names right. But anyhow, that's another whole story. Maybe you find your identity in the famous people that you've met. Do you find your identity in life, in what you do, the job you have, or maybe the job you had, the causes you support, the hobbies that you have, maybe your love of gardening. See, I guess what the list of things that can define us is actually endless and possibly overwhelming. And so you might be someone who, rather than be defined by any one thing, You're just someone who enjoys just drifting along in life with no thought of regarding what it is that defines you. Now, at the risk of popping your bubble, you might be, I might want to just point out maybe this has become your identity, but that would be a terrible thing to say, wouldn't it? But anyhow, if you're a person, a follower of Jesus, then my prayer is today that as we read 1 Peter, we get to see that the very fact that we are followers of Jesus is not something that we tack on to our already full list of things that define us, but rather our allegiance to Jesus becomes our defining reality. Your allegiance to Jesus should be your defining reality. And it should be that because it's unbelievably good, although one Peter will put it a little more eloquently than that. But it should also be your defining reality because it goes on. It's got eternal benefits. Our allegiance to Jesus will outlast anything else in life that might define you. So in case you haven't picked up, we're going to begin today a series on 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at it to the end of December. Uh, 1 Peter is written by Peter to a bunch of Christians. Now, these Christians are scattered throughout Pontus and Pontus, sorry, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Now, I'm sure you know where those places are. They're probably on your bucket list of places to go. It's modern-day Turkey, so at least you'll go there. You might not come back, but that's another whole story. The reason why these Christians are scattered throughout the region is because they're persecuted. 1 Peter is written to Christians in the face of persecution. And it's written to them to remind them how to live out their faith in Jesus in the midst of this persecution. And not just so that God is glorified. Peter wants the Christians in this region to live out their faith so that others in the region come to know Jesus. I think we're going to find that Run Peter is very relevant for us as God's people today. So how about I pray and then we're going to get into the first section of the book. Our Lord and our God, 
We pray that in your grace you will keep us being shaped by your word. May your spirit work in us to reveal our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'll be working in our lives to remove those distractions that we have. And Lord, that this time will be a time in which your word seeks to change us and shape us. So that we won't merely listen to it and so deceive ourselves, but there will be people who do what it says. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1 begins with reminding us that regardless of what it is that may have defined you in the past, before you were a follower of Jesus, we now have something that is bigger and better, longer lasting and more valuable as our identity. You see, in verse 1, these Christians are reminded that they are God's people. They are God's elect people. They might well be in exile... They might well be scattered by persecution and running for their lives, but they are God's chosen people and they must never forget that reality. Now, I must admit I couldn't really claim to have undergone much hardship in my life and certainly not hardship that's happened to me because of, at the hands of others because I follow Jesus. Now, that may well be about to change in society, but... Uh, if I don't have a clear grasp on my identity and who I am in Christ, then I will probably struggle to resist that persecution or that hard time when it comes. It will be so much more appealing to things that the world has to offer if I don't understand whose I really am. You know, I reckon that's why so many Christians start well and then drift away. I think it's why Jesus told the parable of the seed. It talks about people who start well and are choked off by the worries of the world or they're choked off by other things. You know, if you don't understand whose you are in Christ, then my gut feeling is that when any hard time comes, you will drift from Christ and the danger is that you will drift right away from Christ. In 1 Peter... We're going to be asking some questions on the way through today. I mentioned that before. Here's the first couple of questions. If you are a follower of Jesus, is your primary identity found in the fact that you have been chosen by God and that you are his? Is your identity found in the fact that you have been chosen by God, that you are his? My second question is this, what would your life begin to look like if you really did find your identity in Christ? Now I think the answer to that question is actually started to be revealed to us in verse 2 of 1 Peter. God calls those people who he has chosen to be his people, not just to be saved by him, but also to be people who seek to obey him. And before you think that obedience is something that you have to do simply um, by, by yourself, uh, read the passage because it says we're actually, God's spirit is given to those people that God has chosen to help us put God's word into obedience in our lives. You see, God doesn't just say, I've saved you, see whether you can obey me. 
work harder. But he actually says, I've saved you. I want you to obey me. My spirit will help you obey me. Let me reread verse 2. It's coming in the middle of sentence. These people who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. You see, if I claim to be someone who follows Jesus, I will be someone who seeks, with the help of God's Spirit, to heed God's word, to obey him even in the face of persecution. In fact, especially in the face of persecution. Maybe I could put it another way. Spirit-directed obedience to God is something that God has saved us for. Now that very reality can be really challenging and should be. As we'll work through 1 Peter, we're going to see the radical difference God's people living in obedience to God's word makes in a non-Christian society. That's for later. Well, I said before that 1 Peter's written to followers of Jesus who are in the midst of persecution and it begins by reminding ourselves that our identity as God's people, it reminds ourselves of our identity as God's people, but it goes on to point out that as his people we have an incredible hope. And this incredible hope should motivate us to keep following and obeying God in the midst of opposition or persecution. Let me just ask another question. We'll ask a few on the way through. Do you understand how incredibly your, incredible your hope in Jesus really is? How often are you tempted to give up on Jesus? Because life is a little overwhelming. Or because something more appealing is on offer and has distracted you? Are you tempted to stop reading his word? Or have you been tempted to twist God's word so that it is not as confronting to you? How often have you been tempted to stop meeting with his people? How often have you been tempted to feel that you are too busy for God this week? Or too tired for God this week? Or too discouraged for God this week. To know what God has prepared for those who love him is a wonderful encouragement to keep going. To pursue obedience. To reject anything that's better looking short term. Let's look at what this hope is that God has given us. To those whose identity is found in him. Verse 3, we have new birth into a living hope. God gives to those people he saves a new start. New birth into a living hope. A hope that's not dead. A hope that is living. A hope that's founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has called you. God has rescued you. The one he who rescued you is not dead but alive. He's ridden, risen bodily from the grave. A dead saviour really doesn't sound all that appealing, does it? But Jesus has risen. 
And did you notice that your rescue is based on God's mercy? It's not based on your obedience. Even though I've said we want to be people who obey God, our rescue is based on the mercy of God. We obey God because we've been rescued, not in order to, not in order to earn enough brownie points to be rescued. That's good news, isn't it? Otherwise, we'd all be quaking in our boots. The second thing God gives to those who find their identity in him, verse 4, he gives us an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. An inheritance is not something you deserve. We read in verse 3, it's given to us because of God's mercy. An inheritance is not something you've earned. It's given to you because of God's mercy. The inheritance God gives you to those who put their trust in him is overwhelmingly good. An eternity in heaven with God. An eternity without sickness or sadness. An eternity that can never perish, spoil or fade. No one can steal it from you. And the good news about this inheritance is not wishful thinking. It's based on the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. It is ready waiting in heaven for you because Jesus has risen from the dead. One for you already by him. And so in the midst of any persecution you might find yourself in, and if you want to know whether this persecution is worth it, in the tough decisions that you need to make about godliness, if you want to know that those tough decisions are worth it, remember where you're heading. And remember that you're heading there because of what Jesus has already done. It is a sure and certain hope. Uh, The third thing I think this passage uh, uh, reminds us of in verse 5, you who are... Those who put their faith in Jesus are shielded by God from those who seek, who would want to seek to destroy you. So our hope in Jesus is filled with confidence because Jesus has risen from the dead, but also because Jesus protects those he saves. Now, now, when I say Jesus protects those he saves, don't get the idea that God is sitting up in heaven ready to press a smite button any time someone calls you a name. In fact, it's just the opposite. These people are suffering persecution in 1 Peter. And the passage speaks of people in the context of persecution. And in the context of persecution, they can put their faith in Jesus because he is worth it. The worst the world has to offer you has no ability to diminish the inheritance that God has won for you. Just remember that. The worst the world can dish up has no ability to take away the inheritance that Christ has won for you. That's good news, isn't it? Now, there's a lot in this passage, and there's a lot more I could unpack, but I'm going to move on to at least ask ourselves the question, how does some of this impact the way that we live as God's people today? I think there's a number of things this passage calls on us to do in light of the inheritance that God has won for us. Back in verse 3, 
we are to be people who praise God. Now, praise is not limited to the songs you sing and it has very little to do with the angle of your neck or the angle of your hands. Praise comes from your heart. Praise is reflected in the way that you live. That's why obedience flows from salvation. You can't claim to praise God when you don't care two hoots about what his word says. It's because we want to appraise God that we start obeying the God who has saved us. We are to be people who praise God. We are also to be people that are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Uh, Sometimes we get the idea that when we're saved, it's to a life of boredom and no fun at all. Because Jesus, even though he's going to give us heaven, has taken away any ability for us to enjoy ourselves on earth. Well, verse 6 says that's wrong. Verse 8 and 9 says that's wrong thinking. We are to be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. How can you be happy suffering for Jesus? What would you be like in the midst of persecution when people are seeking to bring you down or rubbish your beliefs, maybe even take away your life? Verse 6 calls on us to be people who rejoice because of the future hope we have, because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has won it for us. Times will be tough. Times could be filled with pain and sadness But those who oppose Jesus can never change your eternity. And that should fill you with joy now. Sometimes we as Christians get so connected with what we have here and so concerned that we might lose the things that we have here that we are prepared to give up eternity to keep our hands on the things that are rusting and perishing and fading away. But 1 Peter reminds us as God's people that in the face of persecution, we can rejoice. Rejoice in our present sufferings because of what lies ahead. Because of what Jesus has won. Because our hope is not on this earth, but is in heaven. Well, the third uh, thing I want to raise from this passage in how it should impact us today is it reminds us of something that we don't necessarily want. Persecution is an expected part of living for Jesus. Persecution should fill us with joy, but persecution should also be expected. I think in the Western culture, we've fallen into the idea of thinking that we can be Jesus people and culture people at the same time with no conflict. But this passage points out that persecution helps us to know what really matters. It refines our faith. It enables us to trust God more completely. As our society is making steps to try and restrict your freedoms as a Christian or stop the teaching from God's word, I think that's probably a good thing. 
And it will mean that life for us will not necessarily be easy. It will make us work out, have to work out whether Jesus is really worthwhile living for. Is Jesus worthwhile losing your job over? Is Jesus worthwhile losing our church buildings over? You see, as persecution increases to those who take God's word seriously, it will reveal what we are really trusting. And it might well force us to put our trust only in Jesus and our future eternal hope. I think we know it in theory, but universally where the church is persecuted, it grows. Because it learns that Jesus is our eternal hope and the only hope that lasts. Now, don't say that lightly. I'm not actually sure what your future or my future holds, but I wonder whether you'd, what you'd be prepared to give up in order to follow Jesus obediently and consistently in line with what God's word says. In the Anglican Church in New Zealand, they flogged us in the footy, so maybe this is actually probably retribution, um, that's the real footy, that's called rugby union. Sorry, people in South Australia are probably not all that good on that. But anyhow, um, in, in the real footy, uh, sorry, in, the, in New Zealand, sorry, <laughs> 12 Anglican pastors uh, have recently had to resign from their jobs. And they did that because the denomination that they're part of, the Anglican Church of New Zealand, took big steps away from God's word and formalised those big steps in their beliefs. Five congregations have had to walk away from everything they've owned and invested in for years. The buildings that they loved. Their pastors have lost incomes. And there are many more facing that decision already in New Zealand. And why did they do that? Because they had a, they had a trust in Jesus, a hope in Jesus that was worthwhile living for. A trust in Jesus that was worthwhile losing their job over. A trust in Jesus that was worthwhile losing their church buildings over. Uh, What is your present trials? What is it that's causing suffering in your life? Are your present trials worth comparing, uh, worth it when compared to the hope that you have in Jesus? Uh, ben Kawashi, who was a guy who he got a uh, guy from Nigerian bishop who came out to Adelaide probably five or six years ago, maybe longer, um, who's now heading up the Gafcon movement with the Anglican Church. He uh, made a great comment once at a Lasan conference. He said, "I've got a God worth living for, and I've got a God worth dying for." And they weren't empty words. At the Redison Gafton conference, when he was in Jerusalem, a lot of what he owned was shot in Nigeria. You don't rob his bank. They don't have banks. You shoot his cows. And those that look after them. Is that something you believe? That you have a God worth living for? and a God worth dying for. It's very theoretical for us at the moment, isn't it? 
The, the final thing I want to raise for us today regarding how our inheritance with Jesus, that Jesus has won for us, should affect the way we live as his people today is this. If you know where your identity is and you know where you're heading, that should sharpen your focus. What is the goal of your faith? Verse 9, the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. That's good news. It's a hope that's won for us through Jesus. But it also should be a reality that consumes us. And I don't mean that in a negative way. The goodness of the gospel should consume you. The goal of your faith is not nice songs, comfortable living and a great morning tea. The goal of your faith is the salvation of your soul. The whole of history is focused on that reality. I'm not going to go into part of it in detail, but you get the idea that there's people who've been looking forward to the coming of Jesus for a long time as you read that passage. The whole of what God is doing on this earth is concerned with the Messiah and the glories that will come as a result of the coming of the Messiah. And we know who the Messiah is. And we know what those glories are. So does the gospel focus your life? That's hard to work out, isn't it? If you think of your last week with its family demands and the, the demands of your spouse and the job and your health struggles and the relationship struggles and the rest of life, that, the things that life dishes out to you, how do you know if you're focused on Jesus? Because sometimes a day goes by and you've hardly thought of Jesus. You've just struggled. Well, I think a life that has its focus... Uh, sharpened by the inheritance that Jesus has won for us is one that seeks to allow that reality to impact everything. I talk about having a gospel heart. Do you have a heart that wants to bring the good news of Jesus to those people in your life? Using your gifts, your talents, your time, your resources, whatever it is to bring the gospel to bear on the way that you love your spouse, in the way that you nurture your children, in the way that you go about your work, in the way that, well, whatever it is in your life. What does your diary reveal about your gospel heart? What does your financial expenditures reveal about your gospel heart? What does your bookshelf reveal about your gospel heart? What does your prayer life reveal about your gospel heart? When you meet with people in the doctor's room, what is that? What does your conversation reveal about your doctor's heart, your gospel heart, sorry? When you meet with your spouse or your children, when you engage social media, anyone else or any other way that you can think of a relationship you're engaged in, what does that reveal about your gospel heart? Because knowing who you are, knowing your identity is in Christ, knowing the eternity, the living hope that you have, the inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, that should fill you with excitement and joy. 
but it also should fill you with a great desire for others to know the goodness of the gospel. I pray that God's word will teach me and you that it will rebuke our thinking, that it will correct our living and it will train our hearts so that we might live for Jesus. How about I pray? Lord God, we thank you. We praise you. We praise you for the hope that we have. A hope that sometimes we do not grasp the goodness of. Lord, help us to grow in our knowledge and love and understanding of the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, help us to grow in our obedience to your word as a result of that hope. Lord, transform the way that we live, but transform our hearts. Not just so that we tell others about Jesus, but so that we love telling others about Jesus. That we love living as your people because of the rescue you have already won for us that we love being known as your people and being persecuted as your people because we have a joy, we have a hope that can never be taken away. Lord, we pray that that reality might transform the way that we live, those that we love, the way that we spend the gifts and talents and resources you've given us, the things that consume us, We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.